I'm Michael Cord, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Thanks for joining us. This is the True Philadelphia Podcast. I'm Matt O'Donnell. His Twitter feed declares he is the angriest black man in America. Philadelphia defense lawyer Michael Cord made a name for himself by exclusively representing black men accused of heinous crimes like murder. When someone asked him why he would represent those who were obviously guilty of their crimes, Cord responded, we could go have him lynched now or we can do all of this fairly in a court of law. Cord has been talking about the unfairness of the criminal justice system and policing for black people for decades through his other endeavors as a journalist, a radio host, and college professor. The angriest black man in America? Well, today, Cord says he is still angry, but admits he is getting more and more hopeful that his cries about racial equality are finally being heard and addressed. I start our conversation with a question. If he had a time machine, what would the Michael Cord of today tell the Michael Cord of last year? What would you say to him? What would you warn him about? What would you talk about? December 2019, if I were a prognosticator and I knew what was going to happen now, I'd say, I know it's coming. I knew it's coming. As a matter of fact, many people are surprised that what's happening now. I'm shocked that it didn't happen before. In fact, when I say before, I mean weeks before, I mean months before, I mean years before, I mean decades before. Um, I've been trying to figure out what is it that lit the spark in May of 2020, the end of May 2020, that wasn't lit weeks, months, years before. And the conclusion I came up with is that we pretty much were a captive audience. Most people were home, they weren't able to socialize, and then we got this video. So I think all those things come together and how egregious the act was. Now, when I say egregious, the beating of Rodney King was egregious, but obviously he survived. So I would tell Michael Cord in December of 2019 that it's coming. Be prepared, but don't be surprised. Michael, you spent decades working with for racial equality, criminal justice equality, fighting against police misconduct, all these issues that we're all talking about right now. And back in, let's say, 2019 and earlier, when people heard your name, they would think, this guy's the radical amongst these people who are trying to seek these reforms. Given that we still have a long way to go, but that we're on the path, it seems, how do people describe you now and how should they? It's so funny, a local elected official reached out to me about a week ago and said, Mike, don't go bragging telling everybody I told you so. And I said, no, I'm not going to go bragging. Um, You know, in terms of my ego, it feels good that everybody's catching up. But in terms of reality, I'm really disappointed, as I alluded to before, that it's taken so long. You know, when people hear me yell and scream and rant and rave about racial inequality, they accuse me of being the angry black guy. And I like that because I wear it on my sleeve. Um, James Baldwin said during the Harlem Renaissance that to be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. So for me, the anger was good as long as it's productive and constructive. And when people accuse me of playing the race card too much, 
the response I give would, would be twofold. One, I play the race card because America dealt from that racist deck beginning August 25, 1619 with slavery. And then I say to people, look, you can say what you want about me being radical and revolutionary and out of control, but answer this question. I say this mostly to white folks, but to black folks and others as well. I say, look, if tomorrow you had to be a defendant in a criminal case and you could choose to go to court as a white defendant or a black defendant, which one would you choose? Or it's three o'clock in the morning and you're a student at Temple University and you're driving up Broad Street and there seems to be more and lights and sirens from the police car pull up behind you. And as that officer approaches you, you could be a black driver or a white driver. Which would you select? And any honest person would select box A, the white defendant, the white driver, for obvious reasons. Until we can honestly say, hey, it doesn't matter what race I am as a defendant. It doesn't matter what race I am as a driver. Then we have to admit that something's clearly wrong and we need to do something about it. That scenario crystallizes it so well, Michael. Uh, your, your Twitter page does say that you are the angriest black man in America. I've heard some people say that the Black Lives Matter movement is not only mainstream now, it's main street. It has reached white communities all across the nation. Are you less angry? Uh, no, I'm not. You know, it's funny because with every movement throughout human history, it starts off with that vanguard, those fiery revolutionaries, those fiery radicals. Look at America today. We got 50 states. Well, when the founding fathers got together, they were a small minority. And then eventually people caught up with them. So in every revolutionary movement, it's always going to be the firebrands who started and then the masses come in. And as the masses come in, it kind of sort of gets diluted a bit, but that's just the nature of the business. So for me, it's not a problem. You look at, for example, Nat Turner and what he did to combat slavery. And then eventually that morphed into Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So people could say, hey, Nat Turner turned into Main Street. No, it's just the movement morphed in a, in a natural way, and I don't have a problem with it. For me, whether it's angry black people, woke white people, as long as they're moving forward towards substantive change. Of course, I would love for it to be hardcore and revolutionary, but that's not the real world. I'm a pragmatist. So if it takes one step at a time to reach that 1,000 mile spot, I'll take it. I want it to go by leaps and bounds with the revolutionaries, but that's never happened historically. So as long as Main Street or Revolutionary Street is moving in the right direction, I'll take it. One of Michael Cord's biggest causes was his fight for the city and the Park Service to acknowledge that President George Washington held slaves in what was the president's house located at what is now Independence Mall. He declared victory in 2010 as the President's House Memorial opened with exhibits detailing the roles of President Washington's slaves in his household. I wondered if that battle feels different to Cord right now. Kind of assess how quickly we've moved into thinking that why didn't they want to, why did it take you to get someone to acknowledge this? You know, I tell people that the fight by attack to tell the real story of America's first White House and 
George Washington enslaving 316 black human beings and holding nine of them illegally here in Philadelphia. That battle took eight years. Attack ATAC was founded in 2002. The grand opening of the exhibit took place on December 15, 2010. Eight year battle. But without naming names and breaching any confidentiality in my negotiations early on with the officials from the Park Service, they said, hey, we knew about this stuff back in 1973. But had we come out and admitted that, and if you go to that site at Six and Market, where the new Liberty Bell Center is, about five feet away from there is a reconstruction of what back in 1790 was the slave quarters. So when you go there today, that reconstructed outhouse there is a mere five feet from the new Liberty Bell Center. So as you enter this heaven of liberty, you literally have to cross the hell of slavery to get there. And where that, that, that slave quarters was actually situated, this person in the Park Service said to me, hey, Mike, we knew about that exact site as early as 1973, but we knew that the bicentennial was, bicentennial was coming up in, 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 from uh, 1776 up until 76 just recently. So you're talking about 200 years. And this person, again, whose name I won't mention, this person said, hey, the idea of us admitting that after 200 years, beginning in 1776 to 1976, that George Washington, the father of this country, the godlike personality of American history, not only enslaved black people, but did it right here in Philadelphia, that would be viewed as the height of historical hypocrisy. So if nobody knew about this site, we weren't going to mention anything. And very quickly, Matt, here's how we found out. In 2002, there was a story reported at your station in 2002 that the Park Service was going to move the old Liberty Bell Center, which was at Fifth and Market, to Sixth and Market. Why? Because it was too cramped and congested at Fifth and Market. So we in the Black community said, okay, interesting, but not really something we're concerned about. But the second thing we found out is that that new site, Sixth and Market, is where America's first White House stood. Back in 1790, it was called the President's House. And we said, okay, interesting, but not really relevant to Black folks. But the third thing we found out is that, hey, George Washington enslaved Black people here. So our group was founded in 2002, took all our research to the Park Service and said, hey, what are you going to do about it? And that's when the fight began. And I got to give credit where credit is due. The Park Service officials initially were kind of hesitant, but ultimately, they became allies in the struggle. We had to rant and rave and yell and scream, but I have to admit, they surprised me about their willingness to listen. And I guess because they're genuine historians, and when we showed them the history of America, they couldn't dispute it. I rewatched your speech from 2010 when it opened, and I want to quote what you said, part of what you said. Uh, here, here it comes. Black people not only lost their land, they lost their language, they lost their culture, they lost their religion, they lost their families, they lost everything that made them human beings. Let me ask you now, Michael Cord, in 2020, 10 years later, what do you believe sets our country on the course to make this right? What sets our country on the course to make it right is being slapped in the face with the reality of what black people have been complaining about for a long time. Because 
even well-intentioned white people, because of their experience with police officers, they find it hard to believe that a white cop will beat up a black person for no reason, that a white cop will frame a black person for no reason, that a white cop will perjure himself in court in regard to a black defendant for no reason, and that a white cop will kill a black person for no reason. If I had told white America that a white police officer basically used his knee to strangle a handcuffed man for nine minutes and kill him, I have to say, Matt, nine out of 10 white people would have certainly not believed me. Like, hey, what do you mean? For nine minutes, a cop is strangling a black man who's handcuffed using his knee to do so, that didn't happen. If I played an audio recording of what it sounded like, they wouldn't believe it. It literally took a videotape to show white America what we knew about all along. But that's the trouble I have with America. Even though I'm optimistic about this current movement, and I hope it's a movement and not a moment, the reason why I'm optimistic is because we seem to be moving forward, but I'm not naive. This thing could stall and no longer move forward because people can say, hey, we took down these horrible Confederate statues. We removed the statue of Frank Rizzo. Uh, we acknowledge Juneteenth. Well, that means nothing. Because when you look at the cold hard facts, it comes down to this. Black men in America constitute 6% of the population, but also constitute 40% of the unarmed people shot and killed by police. So you don't need the video of George Floyd to realize something is wrong. How in the world could 6% of the population constitute 40% of the unarmed people killed by cops? It's something wrong. And America is acting like it doesn't know that, but it knew it from the very beginning. It knew it from 1619 to 1865, 246 years of slavery. It knew about it with sharecropping. It knew about it with convict leasing. It knew about it with Jim Crow. So America can't act surprised. I'm glad that America is coming to the reality of what's going on, but I'm disappointed, Matt, that it took so long. Rizzo statue gone in Philadelphia, Columbus statue gone in Philadelphia, Woodrow Wilson desk in New Jersey gone. What happens when we start reassessing the legacies of our founding fathers? Washington Monument. Jefferson Memorial. We are going to be truly disappointed. We just finished with July 4th, Independence Day. 56 white male property owners signed that document, 56. Of that 56, 41, that's 75% of the founding fathers of the signers of the Declaration of Independence either enslaved Blacks, traded Blacks, sold Blacks, or invested in the slave economy. Think about that. 75% of America's founding fathers involved in slavery. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It gets even better or worse, depending on how you look at it. George Washington wouldn't allow Black soldiers to fight in the Revolutionary War until Britain was destroying America. And finally, George Washington relented and said, hey, if we've got some strong men who happen to be black and want to be soldiers, we'll let them in. 5,000 black men joined in the battle to save America and to defeat the British. What thanks do those 5,000 get? No medal, 
no congressional award. Instead, many of them get thrown back into slavery. Think about that. You sacrificed your life, 5,000 black men, to fight in the Revolutionary War, and once it ends in 1783, you're thrown back into slavery. It's something wrong with that, clearly wrong with that. And one other quick thing I want to mention, I had said this to somebody recently talking about July 4th. Very quickly, I said that, you know, it's good that America appears to be turning the tide, but many people would be shocked to know that that horrendous Supreme Court decision, the Dred Scott decision from 1857, has never been overturned. People are like, what do you mean it's never been overturned? What about the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment? Those are congressional actions. I'm talking about, has the Supreme Court ever looked back and said, hey, what we did in 1857, the Dred Scott decision that black people have no rights, whites are bound to respect, it's never been overturned. When Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 entered that decision, or the Supreme Court entered that decision, they overturned Plessy versus Ferguson from 1896. But the Dred Scott decision has never been overturned. It gets worse, Matt, because in 2016, the Solicitor General of the state of Kansas cited the Dred Scott decision to support his argument. 2016, think about that. A chief law enforcement official in one of America's 50 states in 2016 is citing the Dred Scott decision of 1857 as good law. So when people tell me that America has really moved forward a lot, no, no it hasn't. Until the average white person would easily and voluntarily trade places with a black person, America hasn't changed. You plan to file a class action lawsuit against Philadelphia, or maybe you've done already, uh, over how police treated protesters on the Vine Street Expressway as they were protesting, largely peaceful, tear gas was used. If you were to ask police commissioner Daniel Outlaw and Mayor Jim Kenney to do just one thing to begin the process of looking at this and reassessing how policing is done in Philadelphia, what would that be? If I could sit down with the commissioner and the mayor, I'd say it's very simple. In June of 2017, the city signed its three-year contract with the FOP. And that contract has been going on every three years. And the last one was 2017. It was supposed to expire in June of 2020, but because of COVID-19, it's extended to June of 2021. I'd say to the mayor, I'd say to the police commissioner, you got to renegotiate that contract because that contract is now based on something called Legislative Act 111 of 1968. Without getting too technical and convoluted, that act basically says this, if internal affairs or any police official determines that a police officer engaged in misconduct, that commissioner can't fire that cop outright. They have to go through an arbitration system through the American Arbitration Association that has ruled in favor of cops 90% of the time. Why has it been 90% of the time? Very simple, because that law says that the American Arbitration Association can, it quote, ignore findings of fact that have been proven, unquote, against a brutal, corrupt, or thuggish police officer. So the mayor and the police commissioner must renegotiate that contract to make sure that the cops no longer have a license to brutalize and a license to murder. That's what they can do very quickly. There's some long-term things, but right now, renegotiate that contract. Michael, as we sit here talking today, the city is on track to just blow out of the water the amount of homicides that recorded back in 2007. 
There are shootings every day. 31 people were shot between Friday and Monday over the July 4th holiday. The question here is how do you balance the reforms that you seek while still protecting the citizens of Philadelphia? Good question, Matt. I'm so glad you posed it because reasonable people like you will ask that question. Say, hey, you're always talking about uh, the rights of defendants and the rights of suspects and the right of image. How about the rights of people to be safe? Well, the answer is not increased law enforcement. Many of my clients are young men and society calls them thugs, calls them monsters like Frankenstein. And the best analogy, Matt, is this. If you read the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, you'll find out that the monster had no name. Who was Frankenstein? Frankenstein was Dr. Victor Frankenstein who created the monster. So America has created the monsters that become my clients. How do I know that? Because I could have been one of them, Matt. I was born and raised in North Philly to a single mother. So I should have been on track to become one of those monsters. But what America did in its racism, I went to a North Philly school that was well-intentioned but under-resourced. I got lucky, did well in the third grade. What did America, what did Pennsylvania, what did Philadelphia do? They plucked little Michael Cord out of that under-resourced North Philly school, and they put me in Masterman with all the smart white kids. So now that I'm in Masterman, I'm getting a great education. I'm on my way to college. I'm on my way to law school. Well, I'd venture to say, Matt, if 90% of my clients today have been plucked out of their under-resourced urban school and placed in institutions like Masterman, then they wouldn't be those so-called monsters. So the solution to the problem is not locking people up and throwing away the key because eventually they're going to get out. You arrest somebody for a shooting today, it's a five-year mandatory. What happens five years from now when they get out? Ten years from now. So what we have to do is this. Just like surgeons do with cancer, they don't put a Band-Aid on it. They cut the cancer out. So every single one of my clients, every single one, I must have had, I don't know, maybe 10,000 cases in my 25-year career. Every single client had one of three problems. No father at home, no education, or no job. So if those persons had gotten good educations, they therefore would have gotten good jobs and wouldn't become criminals. So I say to society, if you really want to resolve the problem of violent crime, you have to, instead of putting a Band-Aid on it, you got to go deeper. You got to be holistic and look at it long term. Otherwise, you throw these guys in jail today, they'll be back in two years, five years, 10 years. What do you want to do then? cut out the cancer by cutting out poverty and cutting out ignorance. I think you see more and more successful people out there acknowledging how much luck had to do with their success. And I think that more and more people acknowledging that will help crystallize some of the things you just said. Absolutely. And, and you know, I'd love to think that, hey, I'm this great guy who did all those great things. No, I just got lucky that day. My third grade teacher, Miss Brent, she liked me. I guess she prepared me well. The exam came up the day that I felt good. I guessed on a few questions, got lucky, passed it, went to Masterman, the rest is history. And if you think about it, Matt, even that story about Masterman, you look, and the reason why I said the American system is racist, why didn't my school at 22nd and Dolphin and North Philly Pratt Arnold, why didn't we have the resources that Masterman had? Why didn't we have the books that Masterman had? Why didn't we have the teachers Masterman had? So if you start at the very beginning, you won't have a problem ultimately. But yes, luck plays a major, major role. 
January of this year, it seems so long ago, you criticize how the Martin Luther King Day of Service was organized and run, and who runs it, which is a white man named Todd Bernstein, someone you call a friend. And when you called him out, you explained, and I'm going to quote here again, Michael, I mean no disrespect to any white person, but we have to stop white people from appropriating Dr. King and get them to start appreciating Dr. King. Is that happening right now? Kind of, sort of. There have been some confidential, off-the-record discussions with some of the stakeholders, and we appear to be moving in the right direction so that by the next King Day, it'll be a whole different thing. And you're getting the scoop because I haven't spoken to anybody publicly about this. So I'll tell you where we are. This is what I said to Todd, who is a good friend of mine. I said, Todd, I'm a feminist, but it's no way I would go into a women's organization and lead their movement. I support gay rights, but I'm straight. So I'm not going to go to a gay rights organization and take over that movement. I support the rights of the disabled, but I'm not disabled. So I'm not going to go and take over. I'm going to go to each of those organizations, each of those groups. I'm going to sit in the back of the room and I'm going to wait until they call on me and I'm going to follow their lead. But I'm not going to take over. I have a problem with what Todd is doing in form and in substance. In regard to substance first, no disrespect to Todd, but, and no disrespect to janitors and custodians, but that's not what Dr. King stood for. He didn't stand for the rights of black people to go and clean some toilets or paint some blocks. He talked about ending systemic racism. So the substance of a day of service is not close to what Dr. King talked about. And then we get to the form. And the form again is a white guy leading a black movement. Should white people be involved in black programs? Absolutely positively. In fact, I'd argue that's essential, but leading it, it's a problem especially. And I said this to Todd, and I'll say it to you. See Dolores Tucker, who was a close friend of Dr. King, started the Martin Luther King Nonviolent Center here in Philadelphia in 1983. Todd didn't come along until more than a decade later, about 12, 13 years later with his thing. So I'm saying, hey, Todd, a black woman who worked with King did this thing a decade before you. It looks to me like you're hijacking. It looks like you're commandeering it. It looks like instead of appreciating her great work with Dr. King, you're appropriating her great work. And, you know, I got to give credit to Todd. He listened to me and is continuing to listen to me. So right now, if we can change the focus or redirect the focus from a day of service to a day, a week, a month, a year, a lifetime of ending systemic racism, and if we can allow people like the family and associates and colleagues of C. Dolores Tucker to take ownership and leadership, then and I are on the same page. We're moving in the right direction, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed. You're an adjunct professor at Temple University's African Studies Department. Let's bring up a scenario here. Let's say you're teaching a class of some young, bright students, and one of them raises his or her hand and asks Professor Cord, why can't I say all lives matter? What was your response? Great question. The reason you can't say all lives matter is because it's like going to a neighborhood block 
there are 10 houses on the block and one house is engulfed in flames and you say all houses matter. No, the house that's burning up matters. So when you put things in context, you got to deal with what's going on. So in just the way that all houses, all 10 houses on that block don't matter when one's on fire, America can't say that all lives matter. Didn't matter from 1619 to 1865 during slavery. Didn't matter after that during sharecropping. Didn't matter after that with convict leasing. Didn't matter after that with Jim Crow. And it doesn't matter today because if all lives matter, the people who say that, the student who asked that, I would say if all lives matter, you're going to be a defendant in the criminal case tomorrow. You want to be a black one or a white one. They know the answer. So again, just like all houses don't matter when one's on fire, you can't say right now that all lives matter when you've done what you've done to black people. And, and that student posing that question would be a good faith question. But the average person who I've seen who posed that, they don't really mean that because they're not doing anything to show all lives matter. If you really believe all lives matter, how many black folks work at your job? How many black folks do you golf with? How many black folks are in your fraternity or sorority? Go to your church. So no, when, people, when most people say all lives matter, that's just a way to undercut the Black Lives Matter movement. And very quickly, Matt, it's not that the Black Lives Movement is saying that we're superior or we're supreme or we're more important to you. All we're saying, think about this, is that we matter. The fact that black people literally have to make an argument, persuade people that we matter, speaks volumes. It sure does. This is a big picture question. This is not about who's gonna be sitting in the White House next year, who's gonna be in the governor's mansion in Harrisburg in a few years. I wanna know what you think, where is the United States going to be in a few years? It's going to be in a better place, a perfect place, no, a wonderful place, no, a great place, no. But without getting political during this interview, Matt, I want to say that it's no way that any reasonable person can say that the vision of the White House today is a good one, that it's moving the people together. It's uniting America. No reasonable person can say that. So any change from a negative approach in the White House, any change from constantly dividing, any change from referring to Nazis as good people, any change from locking up children, any change from what we're talking about, I often condemn America. I look at people like a Ronald Reagan and Bush one and two and Nixon and say, why well, really wasn't feeling those guys but I had to concede that based on what they did, although I disagree with 90%, that based on their actions, they were trying to at least appear to move America forward. Even if they didn't believe it, they were saying the right thing. But when you have a person in the White House who's not only doing the wrong thing, but saying the wrong thing and being proud about it, it's something wrong with that. So I see the next four years with the next administration as being a move in the right direction. Perfect, no, great, no, but certainly better than where we are now.
You may not like Michael Cord's ideas on race and policing, and as a result, you may no longer like me for talking to him and opening up this forum. Cord acknowledged this feeling could go both ways. Maybe some of his friends or colleagues or listeners don't like me, so he shouldn't be willing to speak on my podcast. How do we get anywhere when we don't talk to each other and run the risk of hearing challenging new ideas that they would feel that I'm anti-police? Just for simply talking to you. What I'm trying to do is listen to people. How do you get people to listen to people? If you had asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have stammered and stuttered because I wouldn't have had a good answer. But the way you do it is instead of being as accusatory and judgmental as I used to be all the time, but only am some of the time, I take that stuff and put it in my pocket. And I try to meet the person where he or she is. If I were talking, for example, to a conservative Republican who's white, I'd say to the person, hey, you love America, don't you? Obviously, they're going to say yes. And you believe that all humans are equal. And that person would say yes. And I was at, posed that same question I posed at the beginning of this interview. Hey, hypothetically, you know, if you had to go to court tomorrow because somebody charged you with a crime, what would you want to be? And, and I, you know, I say, I want, want you to really be honest with me. What do you want to be? And if the person says, hey, I would want to be a black guy as a defendant in America, we got to stop that discussion right then and there. Because I can't go anywhere. If the person says, one, I love America. Two, I believe everybody's equal. And three, yeah, there have been problems with slavery and, and the residue of that. So I got to be honest. If I had to go to court or was confronted by a cop, I'd be, I'd prefer to be a white guy. And I say, okay, so we're somewhere. Then I say to the person, why would you prefer to be a white guy? Because I say to the person, I agree with you on that. As black as I am, as angry as I am, I'd love to be a white guy if I had to go to court. So that guy or that woman and I, we agree on three or four things already. So what I've learned in my senior years is that you got to meet people where they are. In fact, I watched a documentary once, and I don't know who it was, but this person said that you got to negotiate with your enemies because there's nobody else to negotiate with. If they're already your friends, then they're your friends. So if there's any negotiation, it has to be with your enemy by definition. So either we can continue to fight and bash each other and make no headway, or there could be a hundred issues in the pot. And there are 90 issues that we just don't agree upon and we're going to fight. Let's take those 90 issues and throw them out of the pot. And those 10, those 10 that we agree upon, let's work together on that. We can deal with those other 90 in a year, in a decade or whatever. But right now, I'd venture to say that I and the average white Republican conservative agree on at least, at least 10, maybe more, but at least 10. So my thing now is let's focus on that 10. Because again, as a wise man once said, you don't negotiate with your friends you negotiate with your enemy or your opponent. And I'd rather use the word opponent because it's not an enemy. If I call him or her an enemy, then we got a problem at the outset. So let's find out what we disagree on, throw that away for now and focus on what we agree upon. And I'm so glad you say what you said because if you simply as a professional interviewer just talk to one side without the other, you're in the echo chamber. So you're doing what you have to do and I would hope that and know that You've spoken to and will speak to people who are polar opposite of me and will take the opposing view. But I hope that person says, hey, 
that Michael Cord is a troublemaking agitator. But he did say one thing during that interview with Matt that I like. Maybe I and Mike Cord can work together on that one thing. Hey, we made progress. I think echo chambers are the, one of the biggest problems, and they're exacerbated by some of these, you know, technology companies. And yes. Uh, yes. we as human beings need to do more work to try and make sure we get out of it. Absolutely. I agree with you. In fact, I even tell my colleagues, my comrades, say, I love you, but you and I just keep saying the same thing to each other. You know, I need to hear something that moves me forward, even if I disagree with it. I can't disagree with it until I hear it and understand it. Right now, you and I just saying the same thing to each other and we don't grow. It's only until you hear an opposing view and entertain an opposing view. Even if you reject it, you gotta hear it. You gotta listen to it. You gotta chew on it. You gotta digest it. Ultimately, you might reject it, but you have to consider it. And that's what I wanna do. It's so funny because I'm this criminal defense attorney, and it's so funny, I handle primarily murder cases. Every single murder case I've had against every DA in the current administration, the past administration, the prior, in the middle of these homicide trials, the DA will say to me, usually white, hey, Mike, you're, you're not a bad guy. You, you seem pretty reasonable. And I'm like, <laughs> surprise, surprise. What they ever going to do? Come in here and yell and scream at everybody, try to choke every white person I see? No. I say what needs to be said, but you're doing your job as a prosecutor and being respectful to me. I'm doing my job as a defense attorney and I'm being respectful to you. There's no need for us to have any personal animus. It's almost like soldiers from different nations at war. That soldier from this country doesn't know the soldier from that country, but they're shooting at each other, but it's nothing personal. There are rules of engagement and many prosecutors are shocked that I respect the rules of engagement, and I'm willing to listen and work with people. But I will say, as Malcolm X pointed out, for Black people in America, we've never, never gotten anything without yelling and screaming. Never, not once. So the people who accuse me of being an out-of-control yeller and screamer, I'd say, when did white America ever give anything to Black people? Didn't give us freedom, didn't give us equality, didn't give us affirmative action, didn't give us anything. Every single thing, every single advancement we've gotten came from fighting. And look at somebody like Dr. King. You talk about the personification of nonviolence, a Christian minister, he's begging and pleading with America to do the right thing. And they kill him. So when Black people like me yell and scream, you have to understand why. And I say to white folks, what if the shoe were on the other foot and Africans 40 years ago invaded Europe and brought Europe into Ghana and Senegal and the Ivory Coast and changed their name, changed their religion, changed their culture, changed everything about them? How many white folks would be calm and composed today as second class citizens in any one of the countries in Africa? No way. So I'm doing as a black man in America what the average reasonable white person would do had his or her ancestors been enslaved and held as second class citizens up until today. Final question, Michael. I think the pandemic really has lifted this Pandora's box of all the things that maybe we didn't realize were imperfect about us as a society and humanity and how much work we really need to start doing immediately. And that's good. 
given we're about four and a half months into this, what has the pandemic taught you? It's taught me that America is willing to listen. Because I got to tell you, I'm shocked that it's not just the young white radicals out on the street with signs. There are white, elderly, Christian ministers joining in the Black Lives Matter movement. So this thing, this pandemic, and then the resulting explosion or unrest that came toward the end of it, and I need to correct myself and I say toward the end of it because people think that it's over, but COVID-19 doesn't care about sunny 90 degree weather. No. We're still dealing with it right now. So it hasn't ended and without sounding too pessimistic, it's gonna get worse because right now it's by itself attacking us. When the flu season comes up in September and October, that's gonna be a one-two punch, so it's gonna get worse. But in terms of what it's taught me by being uh, shut in at home, that uh, whole thing of not being able to come and go as I please, it, it, it forced me to watch more television news reports than I normally would. And I'm seeing across Philadelphia, across Pennsylvania, across the United States, people of goodwill, of every race. And I use the term race loosely because really there's no such thing as race from a biological standpoint. We're all the same, just have different color skin and hair texture and that kind of thing, but we're all one race. So what this pandemic and the isolation has taught me is that from watching America on the news almost 24 hours a day is that, hey, America is not as bad as it appeared to be. And when I say as it appeared to be with slavery, with sharecropping, with Jim Crow, that there are many white people who are willing to admit, hey, we did some bad stuff and now we're willing to fix it. So if there's any good that came out of this whole thing of being shut in, if there's any good coming out of the horrific murder of George Floyd, it's that it's brought us all to the table. And most people who I've encountered, most people who I've seen are willing to say, this stuff is bad. How can I help to fix it? I know you're angry. You sound pretty hopeful too, Michael. I have to be. It's so funny because I don't want to be the old guy who mellows out. I want to be. <laughs> That firebrand in college that's yelling and screaming. But when your back hurts, when you try to jump up against somebody to high five, you can't really do it that much. But I'm still a student of James Baldwin, who, as I pointed out at the outset, when he said to be black and conscious is to be in a constant state of rage. I'm still enraged. I'm still angry, but I'm willing to sit down and negotiate with my opponent years ago. I wasn't willing to do that. He is an attorney, journalist, radio host, and professor. He is Michael Cord, and he is joining us here on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Michael, thanks so much for your time. And thank you, and I appreciate what you're doing at the Philadelphia Podcast, the True Philadelphia Podcast, because I got to tell you, Matt, you asked me some questions that I didn't see coming, so you did a great job at forcing me to think on my feet, asking probing questions, uncomfortable questions, but great questions that deserve an answer. So I appreciate you and what True Philadelphia doing to make Philadelphia a better place. I thank you for saying that, Michael, and I'll just respond by saying I do what everyone does here at Action News. We like to do our research. Well done, very well done. Thank you. Hey, Michael, that was awesome. Thanks for listening and watching the True Philadelphia podcast. Check out our previous episodes on YouTube and Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't already, 
please subscribe. We'll be back again soon. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Stay true. That's good. Thanks.